This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Welcome back to Docera Digest. Today, we're going to talk about cycles in relationship to parasites. But before we do, I'm going to ask a trivia question. Do you guys know where lunacy or lunatic comes from? The word lunar. Correct. And where does lunar come from? The moon. It comes from the Roman goddess Luna, which is the goddess of the moon, which I thought was kind of interesting since we were talking about all these brain issues last time and kind of fits right in. So since I'm the one responsible for talking about the phases of the moon and how that fits in, it's kind of appropriate that lunatic and lunacy fits in there. So, so who's the lunatic? No, no. <laughs> who? What? No. Ticks? That was another episode. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things we, we talk about ad nauseum in our office is the effect of the moon on parasites. What I want to touch on real quickly is the about three aspects of how the moon is an impact on uh, parasitic activity. So first of all, you have the gravitational effect of the moon on the earth. And what it does, is it affects water, especially, and the tides of the water. And really, it's actually the whole earth. But since water is less dense, it has more of a noticeable effect. And since parasites are mostly water organisms, they're affected. So you could almost think of it as their inner in inner tides are being shifted and changed and they're becoming more active or more uh, diverse. The second thing that is uh, impacted from the moon is also the frequency. It's To me, I think of it from the perspective of the sun bathes the earth in, in this uh, UV energy and all this type of stuff. When the moon gets in the way, it changes the dynamic or the frequency of what's coming to the earth. And so now this change in frequency impacts these water organisms that are basically living inside of us. The third thing really comes down to stuff we've talked about before, both serotonin and melatonin. When we get into the full moon, our serotonin elevates and our melatonin decreases. So now we are more active, less sleeping, which kind of fits into their, their desired approach towards life and replicating. So what we find in our office typically is when the new moon comes, they start to become more active, uh, start to feed, start to grow. And then as we hit the full moon, that's when they actually release their eggs, replicate, reproduce. And then after the full moon, they kind of go back into a lull, kind of like these tides that come and go. So what's also interesting, though, is not only you've talked, you know, we talked about how serotonin affects uh, the digestive system. But what's interesting also is one of the articles I read, parasites love serotonin because it helps. They use it to communicate with each other and create those biofilms that I talked about, that this is a way so they can inhibit the immune system from getting rid of them, especially when they're the most active in reproducing. 
So it's kind of interesting how these moon cycles have an effect. Now, one of the things you and I had a conversation about, so if we take this concept that the moon is affecting both the gravitational pull and the frequency um, that the Earth is experiencing, we have these different types of moons, the red moon, the blue moon, the great moon, the super moon, the micro moons. All of those have these subtle little nuances of how they interplay. We've also talked about the difference between worms and protozoa. And it's interesting because I actually have a patient, his is actually almost the opposite. He becomes more active in the in-between stage as opposed to between the new moon and full moon. His actually gets worse between the full moon and the new moon. So it's kind of interesting how these subtle nuances of the moon's phases play a part in this parasitic activity. So one of the biggest things we talk about is, and it's been mentioned, if you notice your symptoms ramp up, if you are, uh, if you feel more weak, depressed, anxious, you crave more sugar, unable to sleep, you have increased levels of pain in your body, diarrhea, constipation, fatigue, you're most likely dealing with parasites. So this is how the moon amplifies or changes or and that, and that's what we notice also in our office that we tend to do dosages in in coordination with that as well and, and and this also speaks to you know plenty of people have done parasitic cleanses if you don't time it right because most of those are not the length of time that we usually do you may not get any effect at all because you're not timing it with the right cycle of the moon so any other thoughts gentlemen on the moon well, it's interesting because the moon's always there. It still have the same gravitational effect. It's not like it, it goes away and hides and comes back. The real difference is, is the reflection of the sunlight on it, which is really a light or energy or a frequency that's being reflected from the minerals the, on the moon there and how it's affecting it. And you even look back into people who hunt and fish and everything else, they look at these moon cycles because it dictates a lot of the patterns because you see – how animals move well, during these times, how they feed, how they do these different things. And this dictates all that. Now, is that because they all have parasites and they're responding to it that way? Or is <laughs> right. it because that's circadian rhythm? That, of, that's of just nature. the way it is in, in the world and nature and how we see these things play out. So there is a subtle, there's an aspect, you know, because the moon does move closer and farther away. There is a little bit of fluctuation in that gravitational pull. I, I think it's a combination of all three of those things that are really playing in there. And so, like many things, Else, many things else in life. It's not one thing. It's multiple things. It's the interaction, interplay of all those things. I think one of the a neat thing about that that you brought, up, Dr. Craig, is is since we know that these moons affect the water, well, think about this: Is there any place in the universe, out there in the cosmos, that life exists without water? I mean, not that we know of right now. So, if water is such a critical thing to the Earth. And to us, we don't live without water. I mean, you know, if we don't have enough water, you become sluggish and die, basically. Same with the parasites, other animals. So as that full moon is affecting water, which is the life force or life source, it's going to affect every creation, whether it's plant, animal, human, or whatever. And so it, we're, all, we're just kind of in all this whole aspect of it, and it changes everything about us. Well, we're also water-based. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I meant. Organisms yeah. as well. So it's, yeah. you know, our increased activity actually helps their increased activity and motility as well. Exactly. So it's kind of interesting. So I'm going to pass it on to you. We've talked about the moon. Now let's talk about the seasons. Uh, for me, it's kind of funny because once in a blue moon has a different meaning now or the pink moon, the red moon, all those different things. And I love how you, you talked about how it changes the electrical impulse 
into the earth and even into us and animals, all that stuff. So one of the things I want to kind of talk about is the four seasons. Now, if you think about the rotation of the earth around the sun and how it changes its location, that's what gives us seasons, right? And then the effect of the full moon in each of those seasons, it has another dynamic effect, what happens to not only us, but parasitical. We talk about SADS disease. I think Dr. Kelly brought that up earlier, you know, in the wintertime. You know, we talk about what happens in the spring, the summer, and the fall, right? And so we generally talk about in the life, the total uh, life expectancy, we always call you know those certain end of life stages the winter part of life the fall of life which i guess that's where i'm at in my age anyway so when i start talking about those i I go back and go well let's remember the effect of the different types right so we talk about the endoparasites the ectoparasites right and the thing that we have to take in mind is is that when we look at where seasons change or affect parasites, specifically the protozoa, is that it's springtime where everything's coming alive again, right? We're coming out of the dead of winter and we're starting to grow. And so all these things are becoming alive again, whether it's in animal hosts, whether it's in plant hosts, and then the humans are getting out there, they're getting re-engaged. So the spring to summertime, and maybe even the beginning of early fall is when we see the majority of parasitical infections start to occur, right? So when we look at what's happening there, what do people People do well, you know. They're getting out. They're gardening. They're planting things. They're bringing in new, you know, gardening flowers, shrubs, whatever. And so they're starting to engage in the earth once again. And so we see all this. Well, now animals out there roaming around and doing the very same thing. And they're engaging when they defecate, urinate, whatever, and all that stuff that happens. And so everything's coming alive. And that's where most people go out. We talk about. People go into lakes and rivers and streams and swimming pools, which were all these protozoa live. Right. And then let's don't forget about animal or livestock, you know, those things that Dr. Geis and Dr. Luke are going to be talking about in this series as well. Then it's time that ticks, flies, mosquitoes are all active and alive and coming around and they're starting to do all their stuff and start spreading things around. So we've talked about that it spreads parasitical activity from animals and plants now into humans, right? So once a mosquito draws blood from the animal or the human, and it can take it to the next one, that's another cause. So when do we see most of these things start showing up? Spring and summer, right? So that's one of the most critical things I look at that. The next thing I want to take or bring into effect that most people aren't aware of is in what happens during that spring and summer time. That's when we have most of our big storms, right? Which, as Dr. Craig was alluding to, it changes electrical pulsivity. It's what starts reactivating those that have been in what's called a diopase phase, which means the parasites have gone into hibernation during the fall and winter time. And now they kind of get woke up, right? Let alone the rain spreads all the fecal material. I think Dr. Luke brought this up in one of the earlier uh, series, where now it starts flooding all this stuff toward the rivers, the lakes, and the streams. And that kind of goes down. And here we are out there fishing, hiking, boating, and doing all these kind of things. And so we're re-exposed ourselves, okay? So generally, we know that parasitical infection rates primarily increase during the spring to early summer time frame. Now, that's when the, if there is going to be some infestation aspect or some symptomatology show up, that's when we're going to see that that happen, right? So, again, we got to take in the last five to 10 years when most research has been done on this around the world, not just in the States, but we're seeing so many more of these. And I just read a research article just a few days ago where they talked about a new strand of a parasite of Cryptosporidium that is affecting sea lions and seals in California, and they've never seen this one before. 
And you're going, well, how'd it get there? Seasonal changes, it moved around. Or generational aspects of those parasites developing has caused that. So what we have to remember is that most of us are coming out of a dead winter season, right? Where we've been exposed to viral bacterial and fungal mold issues and our immune system has been weakened. So now all of a sudden, we're moving into spring with a mucin, I mean a weakened, a mucin, yeah, a weakened immune system that generally takes us three or four months to rebuild and repair and regenerate. And now we get exposed to these new parasites. And sometimes we feel that's probably why some patients don't have symptomatology because they have no army to, to defend themselves. And so it just comes in, there's no fight, there's no reaction, and it sets up, it attaches, it engages, and all of a sudden it won't show up for six months. And that's when we're starting to see a lot of the fall type of issues of parasitology issues showing up. So, Docs, anything else anybody wants to add to that? Okay. So when we talk about how parasites actually reproduce in us, we're going to turn this over to Dr. Caleb so he can give us great insight into that. So Dr. Caleb. All right. Thanks, Dr. Ben. So when it comes to parasites, there are so many different types. You know, again, we talked about different classifications, but even within those classifications, there's many, many different species or different um, subspecies of parasites. And it'd be very hard to go into the reproduction of every single one of those because some of them are very simple and some of them are extremely complex. And I'm going to do the very best I can to keep things as absolutely simple and understandable as possible. Uh, so I'm going to talk more in generalities. Okay. Now, a big thing, you know, we talked about a lot of the reproduction and a lot of the eggs and the larvae and all that stuff, you know, the trophozoites, the uvites and, you know, cysts and how they kind of transmit. Um, but what I really want to talk about or highlight is the hosts that are required throughout the life cycle and kind of how that drives a lot of their activity and how they're driving our activity to achieve that those goals. So there are really five different types of hosts, but really when you look at it, only two of them are key aspects of the life cycle. And that's going to be the primary or definitive host and the secondary or intermediary host. So the other three hosts are ones that are just kind of, if they don't end up where they want to be, and they're just kind of chilling out until they can find a way to get where they want to be. Um, they're not really active in the, um, the reproduction or the maturing cycle of the parasite. So that's where I'm going to focus a lot of my attention. So the definitive host, this is basically the final destination. It's the end goal. It's where um, the parasites are trying to get because these are the hosts that the parasites can sexually reproduce in. And, you know, this is where they will finish off their lifetime. It's going to basically be their forever host if they can make it there. If that's their, their paradise, you know, if they can get there, that's where they're going to stay. And they're going to keep reproducing and laying eggs as much as they can until they can't. And then they're just going to, you know, spend the rest of their time enjoying it while they fade off into existence or fade out of existence. So the other key part is the intermediary host or the secondary host. So when the uh, eggs are, you know, shed from the definitive host through the feces, this is kind of where 
they want to get to to mature and to grow. It's kind of like as they go through childhood and adolescence and learn to become adults, this is kind of their training ground or where they can actually grow and, you know, develop into their um, the mature adult parasites that can actually go and handle that paradise uh, host or that a definitive host. So a lot of them we're going to I'm going to talk about some examples of the different uh, with different specific parasites, the intermediary host and the definitive host. Um, but those are two things that I really wanted you to understand before we kind of talk into more of this. So let's go back to the egg. So again, when the intermediary host is infected, the egg will usually develop into a larva. And as a larva, it gains the ability to move around on its own and can travel through their new host to find a more advantageous place to be. So that's where it can go to different parts of the body to get different sources of nutrition. And eventually it'll work its way to the intestines. So it can actually go out of that host, escape that host, and try to get to the definitive host. Um, so again, some may also go to other organs such as the lungs or brain or muscle tissue, um, but usually unless it's part of the, their actual, you know, laying eggs and stuff, which is usually in the definitive host, um, they're not going to have as much of that in the intermediary host. They're going to try to escape from that host so they can get to their ideal host. So just a few examples, you know, we talked about mosquitoes earlier and malaria. So again, that's the uh, parasite plasmodium. So the definitive host is mosquitoes. So that's where they want to be because that's where they can best reproduce. You know, um, that's where <clears throat> they're laying their eggs. And then the humans are typically more of an intermediate host. So the, the malaria gets inside of us and that's where it matures and grows. But really, it likes to be in mosquitoes the best. Now, in kind of a little bit of a flip, if we're talking more about worms, a uh, very common one is heartworm, and this is Dirofilaria imitis. So in this one, mosquitoes are the intermediate hosts. So they're not the ideal location. Dogs are the location. And this is, again, the dog heartworm. So that's what we're really familiar with if we have pets or have dogs is Heartworm, that's a big thing. You see commercials for them all the time for different types of medicines. Um, again, complexity can vary greatly between different types of parasites. So I don't want to take up too much more time, but I want to highlight a couple that are a little more unique or a little more complex and show how this can be really challenging to dig into and understand on a very deep level. Uh, Trypanosoma cruzi, which again is for Chagas disease. Uh, Dr. Kreisen is going to talk about this uh, quite a bit in the next episode. But the unique thing about uh, Trypanosoma cruzi is it actually has two intermediate hosts. So the triatamine insects or the tsetse fly and then humans. So it can have more than one or, you know, um, there can be different stages of that maturing process that parasites can go through. And sometimes they'll go through more than one host before it gets to that ideal definitive host. And uh, let's see, the other one, this one is really scary, is the trichinella roundworms. So in this one, the unique thing about it is the definitive host and the intermediate host are actually the same host. So the same host works on both parts, 
both phases, the maturing phase and the uh, reproductive phase and all that, it all uh, coincides within the same host. They're just in different parts of the body. So, Dr. Kaley, we talked about the sexuality of mm-hmm. the parasites. So some are asexual. Yeah. And that's what you're referring to here is they'll go into the first one or they go into that one. They mm-hmm. can split, diverge because they don't need male or female. And they do that so they can go out and find other parts or yeah. other things that they need to come back and continue the replication mm-hmm. process. Within yeah. some parasites, we have male and female that have to mate within there and cause that same thing to happen. Yeah. And that's so. another thing I forgot to mention with the intermediate uh, host is a lot of the ones that do reproduce, reproduce asexually will do that in the intermediate host. Right. And there are some that will do both. They'll reproduce mm-hmm. asexually in their intermediate host. And then when they get to the definitive host, they'll reproduce sexually. Now, the great thing about this is like we talked about with variety or diversity, you know, if they're reproducing asexually, they're just replicating. They're creating other copies of themselves, basically. So they're the exact same. But when they reproduce sexually, that's like parents and child. They're they're different generations or different aspects. They're different um, advantages or disadvantages, you know, different abilities. Or evolvement or evolution. Yeah. Adaptation. Right. right, exactly. So that is a big part of it. So with the trichinella roundworms, so the intermediary site is skeletal muscle. So larva will travel through the bloodstream to other parts of the body. Sometimes they get stuck in those other parts of the bodies and don't quite make it there and can cause all sorts of other issues. But again, this the skeletal muscle is where they go to mature. After that, they can go into... Um, other parts of the body, and then the definitive part is the intestines. So that's where they go to reproduce sexually, release eggs, and then sh- shed that out into the environment. So if, uh, again, if this isn't enough to give you nightmares, then you are made of sterner stuff than most people. Um, even as doctors, as we learn more about this, sometimes we have nightmares about it. And, you know, it's it's... It's really crazy. The more you learn, it, the, the more interesting it is, but in a lot of ways, the more scary it is, too. Did you dream about parasites last night? No. <laughs> it was a full moon. Yeah, it was. Exactly. That's why I bring that up. <laughs> I took a lot of remedy to avoid that. <laughs> All right. So, if uh, again, if that's not enough to give you nightmares, we're going to turn it over to Dr. Luke to talk about some of the definitive and intermediate hosts that might be lurking in your home. Indeed. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Caleb. So uh, as he said, I want to highlight uh, what to look out for in the home. So one of the big things to look out for is typically, we, as we've already alluded to earlier in the previous episode, if one person in the family has a parasitic infection, then the chances are that multiple people in the family, if not all the family members, have at least been exposed to, if not infected with, that same parasitic infection. So it's super common for us to start with one patient who's experiencing the worst of the symptoms within the family and throughout the course of our discussion. um, And by the end of the discussion and and that first visit, they're booking their other family members (laughs) as well. So um, for the other family members who may not have it as bad symptom wise, listen and obey to whoever brings you in for your (laughs) evaluation and treatment will be worth your while. So your life's hanging on the balance. It is. (laughs) Well, and it's hard to get your patient better if everyone else in the family keeps reintroducing it back to them again. Bingo. It's a communal thing that has to be dealt with. I mean, it's an infestation in that family 
versus just an infection one individual in that household as we've talked about mold and other things bingo so Besides that, probably the most common means of exposure of parasites within the family comes from, uh, not just family, but even single people too, um, comes from pets, specifically cats and dogs. And it's very common for both cats and dogs to carry and transmit Toxocara. Dogs can also transmit a type of hookworm called Ancelostoma caninum. And the cats, of course, as we've covered in depth, can transmit the dreaded Toxoplasma gondii. Being that we're located in Wichita, we see a lot of patients and families who live in surrounding rural areas on large acreage of land, and it's common that these animals will be primarily outdoors for most of the day. So you can only imagine what those animals are picking up and then giving to your kids when they play with them and so forth and so on. So be mindful with your exposure to animals and your kids' exposure to those animals. And that leads me to my next point. You know how they say that the cleanest part of the dog is its mouth? (laughs) It ain't. <laughs> so, so don't let it lick your scratch. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Full, <Dogs> circle. <laughs> so, <laughs> Full circle. Full <laughs> circle. Yep. So please. The circle of life. Yes. Yes. Please do not allow your dogs or animals to lick, lick you, especially lick your face. And if you do, just go ahead and clean that up. So <laughs> keep in mind one of the main ways that parasites transmit is via the fecal to oral route, meaning we're either breathing or ingesting it in. So just go ahead and tuck that one back in the old long-term memory file there. And then lastly, to close this out here, uh, as Dr. Kyson alluded to in a previous uh, or previous mold series, um, there's that episode on Mythbusters. I don't know if it's okay if I use that one. Cool. So they had in the Mythbusters episode, they were wanting to see how far fecal matter traveled throughout the bathroom, uh, specifically with regards to your toothbrush. And they put toothbrush everywhere on the counter, on the walls, on the ceiling, floors. And then I had a control group. I put that in air quotes, a control group in the outside in the hallway that would be, you know, in theory unscathed. But what they found out is that the fecal matter had traveled to literally every single one of the toothbrushes, uh, even outside in the hallway to that control group. So use a cover for your toothbrush as the take home from that. (laughs) Oh, and and put the lid down before you flush. Put the lid down. Yeah, exactly. After you've analyzed it, of course, to give us the information that we need. (laughs) Don't need a sample. Just look. (laughs) That's right. But also, this is a great example to show how easy it is for fecal matter to travel and to be ingested and inhaled and spread between family members and dare I say, even guests. So with that, that is all that I had as far as what to look out for in the home. And I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Kyson and he's gonna talk to us about what occupations and jobs are most at risk. Well, thank you for that public service announcement. So looking at the people who are most likely to get an infection, you know, and so as I was thinking through this, I thinking, well, anything that starts in the earth and kind of works back into our life is going to be the ones that are going to have the most exposure. So dealing with people who are farmers, ranchers, dealing with the food process, going through the entire process of getting it to the stores, even florists were people who had a high exposure to it. And so I was thinking about one of my earlier cases when I first got out of school and I had a gentleman come in and he was feeling sick and we ended up finding he had a parasite. Now he had been on a mission trip to Haiti, him and uh, I think it was like four or five other couples, husband and wife team went down there after the um, earthquake to go down and help rebuild new stuff there. And when they got back within a couple months, all the men were sick and the women were fine. 
And they couldn't figure out what happened because they drank bottled water the whole time they were there. The only time they were separate was for a couple of days. The men left and went to another area where they were picking up debris and building rubble and all this stuff. And it was really dusty and they were breathing all the stuff in. And that was the transmission route in which they got these parasites. And so we ended up treating him and we had to treat all the other men from that team and even the wives to make sure they weren't getting it from them because they were introduced to this. So I was, I was looking up a couple studies here. I went to the uh, NIH and they had a reference to a study that was done by the BMJ or the British Medical Journal. And under their occupational environmental medicine, they had a systemic review. They call it global infectious disease risk associated with occupational exposure among non-healthcare workers. So this is people who are not in the healthcare field. And this was a systemic review of literature. So what they did is they went through and they looked at four or 4,620 different papers. And of that, for their study, the parameters, I'm not quite sure what they were, only 270 of these actually met what they were looking for. And so they went through and they looked at who's most at risk. And so my thought process of, of I thought, man, I got everybody in that as far as that goes. But the number one group who had the most different type of pathogens out there, do you guys know who it is? Any guess? Nurse. Military. Well, military, yeah. I so you, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Look at my screen here. So the armed forces had 36 different types of pathogens and parasites. And these guys being all over the world, you know, that makes sense. The next were livestock farmers. So people who dealt with cattle. And then you have after that separated, it was dairy workers, which was at uh, 26 different types compared to 31 for the uh, ranchers. And so I was like, well, why is that such a difference? You're still dealing with cattle and everything else. Well, and being milkers, they're going to be down there below working with the udders or anything else. But they go through and they flame them with these low-level heat things. So it probably kills a lot of it off and keeps them a little healthier as they're doing that. So a little bit lower. And then the next one was an abattoir worker. Now, I did not know what that meant. Do you guys know what that meant? No, because that's the one that stuck out to me. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of statistics. I had a lot of other people go – Abattoir, that sounds like, no, no, it's not sex worker. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually a slaughterhouse. <laughs> so Makes sense. An English word for that. And then after that, and they had 22 different types. So again, following the cattle there and the beef and everything else and what you're getting exposed to. So making sure your meat is cooked appropriately, you know, it's going to be a big deal. Then animal cares were after that. And I'm not sure that's veterinarians or if it's your dog walkers. And then forestry workers and out of all these, these were the ones that had the most. So out of this whole thing, there's 111 different types of pathogens or parasites that were found here. Now, here's the interesting part. And, and I knew this was an issue, but I didn't realize how much of an issue it was. They went back and they found out that 81.1% of these were exposed through respiratory tract infections. People breathe these in. Four out of five parasite infections were breathed in or breathe inhaled. And that's how they acquired these things through the lungs. Molecules so, of air, molecules of water. Yeah. And so it goes back to exactly what we've been talking about. So th these are really interesting things as far as how this gets spread. So just because you're drinking clean water, just because your food's cooked all the way through, all these other things that are going on, you may be exposed to parasites through other things. So beware of flatulence. Yeah. Just saying. Especially in your pets. So something to keep track of. So that's into this episode here. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about five of the top major things that we see coming in. Here are a little more information on five of the major parasites that we deal with and see. And there's a ton of them here. I mean, that we deal with. There's 
a lot of them, but these are kind of the, the big ones, the ones that we see either causing the most issue or the ones that we deal with the most in our patients. And again, our patients are ones who have all kinds of chronic illnesses. So these are kind of a big part of that. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.